What do you do when you are adapting a story for television that is best suited for radio or the printed page with a main character who is paralyzed for nearly the entire episode? Well, if you're Alfred Hitchcock, you turn it into a challenge. Welcome to Episode 7 of Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, presented by the Ann Arbor District Library. I'm Al Scherzma, and tonight we'll see Hitchcock pull out all the stops with close-ups, still shots, montages, narrative voiceover, and small sounds, a squeaky wheel, a tapping finger, made monumental by their significance. Now, all you have to do is look at Hitchcock's film Rope with its 10-minute long takes, or Lifeboat with its confined space, or Under Capricorn, which we'll get to in a moment, to see that he loved setting technical challenges for himself. Here's Robert Boyle, associate art director for Saboteur and Shadow of a Doubt, as well as production designer for Suspicion, North by Northwest, The Birds, and Marnie, from the BBC Omnibus television series in 1986. He said, you know, film doesn't need a vast moving canvas. You don't have to have, uh, well, I suppose in the modern vernacular, you don't have to have car crashes and, and explosions to make a film. You need to know what you want to say and be able to say it with film. And he said, you could make a film in a closet if you had the proper story. This episode does feature a car crash, though it's done in this bloodless, sort of detached way. And I suppose you could argue that the closet in which Hitchcock works in this episode is Joseph Cotton's body. Now, although this is the second Hitchcock-directed episode that we've seen in the series, it was actually the first episode that Hitchcock directed. It was filmed from September 7th to September 10th, 1955, but it was supplanted as the first episode shown by Revenge, which was filmed a week later, because Hitchcock wanted to highlight Vera Miles as his new leading lady. Whatever the reason, I think it was a good decision. The story may be a bit too stark to lead off a television series in 1955. Now, according to the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion by Martin Grahams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom, Hitchcock first heard this story, Breakdown, on the May 15, 1949 episode of the radio show Prudential Family Hour of Stars. That episode starred Joseph Cotton after James Cagney, who was originally signed to do the role, backed out. I'm trying to picture this story being told on a radio program with Family Hour in its title. Anyway, it appears that Hitchcock was impressed enough with Joseph Cotton's radio performance to cast him for a television performance. It would be nice to be able to compare Joseph Cotton's two performances, but unfortunately the radio show is lost. Here's Hitch to give us our intro, sitting behind a desk, reading a paperback book. Oh, good evening. I've been reading a mystery story. I find them very relaxing. They take my mind off my work. These little books are quite nice, of course. They can never replace hardcover books. They're just good for reading, but they make very poor doorstops. Tonight's story by Louis Pollock is one that appeared in this collection. I think you will find it properly terrifying, but like the other plays of our series, it is more than mere entertainment. In each of our stories, we strive to teach a lesson or point a little moral. Advice like Mother used to give, you know. Walk softly, but carry a big stick. Strike first and ask questions later. That sort of thing. 
Tonight's story tells about a business tycoon and will give you something to ponder if you have ever given an employee the sack, or if you intend to. You'll see it after the sponsor's story, which, like ours, also strives to teach a little lesson or point a little moral. Now, Lewis Pollock's story originally appeared in the June 7, 1947 issue of Collier's Magazine, and it then appeared in Alfred Hitchcock's A Baker's Dozen of Suspense Stories, which was published in 1949. And it's in distinguished company with Agatha Christie, Graham Greene, John Steinbeck, Ray Bradbury, and D.H. Lawrence, among others. But this isn't the book that Hitchcock is reading. The book that Hitchcock is reading is entitled Wolf Woman Strikes. Now, according to Jack Seabrook at Bare Bones E-Zine, this cover of Wolf Woman Strikes features a picture that would be used occasionally on Alfred Hitchcock Presents when a character is reading the paperback. He cites Nightmare in 4D, which is episode 16 of season 2, where the book is titled Night of Horror, and Insomnia, which is episode 30 of season 5, where the book is entitled The Bashful Killer. There's one other odd little moment worth noting in this introduction. As soon as he finishes speaking, Hitchcock looks off to the right as if to ask, was that all right? The fade comes just a little bit late. So here's Breakdown. First broadcast on November 13th, 1955. Starring Joseph Cotton. Teleplay by Francis Cockrell and Lewis Pollock. Based on a story by Lewis Pollock. Directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Now there's been some excellent actors so far in the series but none with the stature of Joseph Cotton. He was a bona fide movie star. But at the time of this, 1955, he was 50 years old, and his leading man time was for the most part behind him. In the Encyclopedia of Alfred Hitchcock, Thomas Letch writes about Joseph Cotton that he was a former paint salesman and drama critic who honed his quiet charm in Orson Welles' Mercury Theater before leaving to create the role of Macaulay Connor in the Philadelphia story. That's in the Broadway production of the Philip Berry play. Now, as far as I can tell, Cotton actually played C.K. Dexter Haven, played by Cary Grant in the film, and Van Heflin played Macaulay Connor, played by Jimmy Stewart in the film. Thomas Letch continues, brought to Hollywood to appear in Wells's first two films, Citizen Kane and The Magnificent Ambersons, He quickly ripened into the modest, sensitive, romantic lead of Since You Went Away, Love Letters, The Third Man, and dozens of other films. It was during this period that Hitchcock cast him twice, strikingly against type, first as the charming widow killer Uncle Charlie in Shadow of a Doubt, and then as the unpolished estate owner Sam Flusky in Under Capricorn. So, yes, Joseph Cotton has a major role in the film that is generally considered the best movie of all time. Not under Capricorn, but Citizen Kane. It has been ranked number one on the American Film Institute list each time they've assembled it. This isn't because it's a knee-jerk response to the question. If you haven't seen Citizen Kane, you should. It's a bold and innovative film that has influenced cinema ever since. In Citizen Kane, Joseph Cotton plays Charles Foster Kane's friend, Jedediah Leland, both as a young man and an old man. And while you can't steal the show from Orson Welles, he comes very close. 
Here's Cotton playing Leland as an old man. You just don't know Charlie. He thought that by finishing that notice, he could show me he was an honest man. He was always trying to prove something. That whole thing about Susie being an opera singer, I was trying to prove something. <laughs> you know what the headline was the day before the election? Candidate Kane found in love nest with, quote, singer, unquote. He was going to take the quotes off the singer. Hey, nurse, five years ago, he wrote from that place down there in the south, uh, What's it called? Uh, Shangri-La, Eldorado, uh, Sloppy Joe's. What, what is the name of that place? Uh, <laughs> all right. Xanadu. I knew it all the time. You caught on, didn't you? I guess maybe I'm not as hard to see through as I think. In the 1998 AFI list of 100 Greatest Films, The Third Man came in at number 57. For some reason, it completely disappeared from the list 10 years later, which is a shame because it's a great film, one of my favorite films, and it features a marvelous performance by Joseph Cotton, once again paired eventually with Orson Welles. This time, Cotton is Holly Martins, a writer of westerns who has gotten in over his head in post-World War II Austria, not just in espionage, but when he's invited to speak and take questions from a literary society. Do you believe, Mr. Martins, in the stream of consciousness? Oh, stream of consciousness? Well, uh, well... Uh... What author has chiefly influenced you? Gray. Gray? What Gray? Zane Gray. Oh, that's Mr. Martins' little joke, of course, sir. We all know perfectly well Zane Gray wrote what we call westerns. Cowboys and bandits. Mr. James Joyce. Now, where would you put him? Oh, would you mind repeating that question? I said, where would you put Mr. James Joyce? In what category? Can I ask, is Mr. Martins engaged on a new book? Yes. It's called The Third Man. A novel, Mr. Martins? It's a murder story. I've just started it based on fact. I'd see you were doing something pretty dangerous this time. Yeah? Mixing fact and fiction. Should I make it all fact? Why no, Mr. Martins. I'd say stick to fiction, straight fiction. I'm too far along with the book, Mr. Petesco. Haven't you ever scrapped a book, Mr. Martins? Never. Pity. Peter Bogdanovich calls Joseph Cotton's performance in The Third Man very American and eloquent. And in spite of his hemming and hawing trying to answer those literary questions, you can hear it in that clip. I like the reference to stream of consciousness there because that is the term used often in talking about this episode as we get to hear moment by moment the thoughts of the main character. Since I brought up the American Film Institute's top 100 list, I might as well mention that in their latest version, which came out in 2007, there were four Hitchcock films, Vertigo at number nine, Psycho at number 14, Rear Window at number 48, and North by Northwest at number 55. Not included was Shadow of a Doubt, even though we know from many interviews that it was Hitchcock's favorite. Here's some examples. Mr. Hitchcock, most critics have always considered Shadow of a Doubt which you made in 1943, as your finest film. Me too. That is your opinion of it still. Oh, no question. If you had to take one of your films, if they said, I'm sorry, there are too many films in the world and we're going to have to select one from each director uh, and destroy the rest, could you 
instantly go to one of your films? La Prefer, you mean? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, well, of course, it's always the last one, but that's too conventional an answer. Now, a film I made years ago called Shadow of a Doubt, I like very much. Uh, Mr. Hitchcock, I understand that Shadow of a Doubt is one of your favorite pictures. Could you tell us why? Well, well, because, first of all, a lot of pictures up to that time had been made on the back lot. And this time, uh, with Thornton Wilder, we uh, eventually sought out a town in Northern California, just about 50 miles north of San Francisco. And we went and stayed in the town and got to know the price of everything, the houses, the bank, and all the detail. And then we went back to the town and shot the whole film there. And I found that very, very satisfying. It also satisfied me in this respect. It was a melodrama, but it was full of character and various characters that the central figure was a murderer, but attractive. Uh, Mr. Hitchcock, which of your films gave you the most personal satisfaction, and why? Well, probably two films. The first one is a picture called Shadow of a Doubt, which I wrote with Thornton Wilder. And this was one of those rare occasions when suspense and melodrama combined well with character. This was my father's favorite movie. And it was because he loved bringing the menace into a small town, into a family that had never known any bad things to happen to them. That he prized more than any other? Yes. What was it? Shadow of a Doubt. It was from a script by uh, Thornton Wilder, and he loved bringing menace into a small town, Santa Rosa, in Northern California. <laughs> oh, I know Santa Rosa, yeah. And he had a brilliant cast, had people he loved in the cast. Joseph yeah. Cotton, one of yeah. his favorite actors. Okay, so there's Pat Hitchcock calling Joseph Cotton one of her father's favorite actors. Let's hear a little more from her about that, and also a little bit from Teresa Wright who co-starred with Joseph Cotton in Shadow of a Doubt. Joseph Cotton, who played Lee, I played Uncle Charlie in the movie, was a very close friend of my parents. I had an enormous crush on him. I just adored him. I was 17. I still adored him. And uh, he and his wife were very, very close friends of my mother and father. So they found it very easy working together. Joe is great fun. He's very elegant man and funny and humorous. Who are you? Charlie. Oh. <laughs> he and Hitchcock just loved each other. They both loved great wines, great food, you know, and storytelling. I guess they both understood darkness, even though they were gregarious, uh, lighthearted men in many ways. Those clips come from the featurette Beyond Doubt the making of Hitchcock's favorite film, which is one of the special features on the Shadow of a Doubt DVD collection. So we know from the Citizen Kane and Third Man clips, as well as from what people have said about him, that Joseph Cotton can be gregarious and charming. Yet how does he fare as a mass murderer? Here he is, Shadow of a Doubt, 
One of the most chilling speeches from the film. Women keep busy in towns like this. The cities, it's different. The cities are full of women, middle-aged widows, husbands dead, husbands who've spent their lives making fortunes, working and working. And then they die and leave their money to their wives, their silly wives. And what do the wives do, these useless women? You see them in the hotels, the best hotels every day by the thousands. Drinking the money, eating the money, losing the money at bridge, playing all day and all night, smelling of money. Proud of their jewelry, but of nothing else. Horrible. Faded, fat, greedy women. But they're alive, they're human beings. Are they? Are they, Charlie? Are they human or are they fat, wheezing animals? Hmm? What happens to animals when they get too fat and too old? Well, I seem to be making my speech right here. Well, for heaven's sake, don't talk about women like that in front of my club. You'll be tied and feathered. And that brings us, like it or not, to Under Capricorn. You may remember this clip from a 1964 Hitchcock interview that I used before in the Triggers and Leash podcast. Now, people have said to me, uh, and this is where the, the accuracy bothers me, people say to me, Mr. Hitchcock, why don't you make more costume pictures? I say for a very simple reason. Nobody in a costume picture ever goes to the toilet. Now, that means that uh, I don't, uh, there's not possible to get any detail into it. Another reason may be that the few times Hitchcock did do costume pictures, they were not successful. The last one he did was Under Capricorn in 1949. It's a slow, plotting film that will always choose to tell you things rather than show you things. Although everyone's supposed to be originally from Ireland in the main cast, no one has an Irish accent. The whole thing is a little bit Othello, a little bit Romeo and Juliet, and a whole lot Rebecca, and nowhere near as effective as any of those. Now, part of the problem with Under Capricorn is that it was another one of Hitchcock's technical experiments. Here's Donald Spoto in his The Dark Side of Genius, The Life of Alfred Hitchcock. Hitchcock intended to film Under Capricorn as he had rope in 10-minute takes and in color. The color of this new film turned out a great success. The 10-minute takes had mostly to be abandoned, although there are several shots that run six or eight minutes. But the most disturbing problem was the strain that the production was putting on the Hitchcock-Ingrid Bergman friendship. He got such pleasure out of doing those camera tricks, she reflected in an interview years later. And of course, the continuous shots and the moving camera were very hard on everybody. We rehearsed for days, and then at last we would put on makeup and have a try at a reel. We would have perhaps six minutes just fine, and then suddenly something would go wrong, and the whole reel would have to begin again. Hitch just insisted. Then the prop men and the business of all that moving furniture while the camera was rolling, it just drove us crazy. There were walls flying up into the rafters as we walked by. All the lights were movable. A chair for an actor to sit on would appear just off camera the minute before the move. What a nightmare. The whole floor was filled with numbers, and everybody had to be on the cued number at the right moment or the shot was ruined. It's the only time I ever cried on the set. I think he did this to prove to himself that he could. It was a challenge only to himself, 
to show the movie industry that he could figure out and accomplish something so difficult, so much technique, so much to show off. But he was determined, and the whole thing became very, very difficult. And of course, the audience couldn't care less. If he had to cut to close-ups and several interrupting cuts in a sequence, they would have been just as happy. They didn't need to see a camera rolling uphill, going under tables, all around the actors in this murderously difficult fashion. Hitchcock remembered the agony Bergman felt then and her reaction to the problems imposed by his unorthodox method. She got into a terrible state, just told me off. And I did what I always do when people start to argue. I just turned away and went home. Later they told me she was still hysterical 20 minutes later. She didn't even know that I'd left. Next day she said, Okay, Hitch, we'll do it your way. I told her, It's not my way, Ingrid. It's the right way. This is most likely what Hitchcock is referring to in this interview clip. As a matter of fact, uh, I have um, had um, occasions with actresses, for example, uh, who came to me extremely tearful and complaining they weren't being directed. So I said, well, I don't direct. There's the script. We put the film down on paper. The only thing I have to do with you is to tell you when you are doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, and uh, <clears throat> and uh, some of them can get um, in very, very um, intense and must-doing. And I remember. Ingrid Bergman used to get very worked up and uh, say, oh, I don't know what to do here and so forth. And I used to say to her, Ingrid, it's only a movie. <laughs> <laughs> that whole speech seems a little bit disingenuous to me. More honest, I think, is this bit from Hitchcock Truffaut. As Hitch says, I had no special admiration for the novel, and I don't think I would have made the picture if it hadn't been for Ingrid Bergman. At that time, she was the biggest star in America, and all the American producers were competing for her services. And I must admit that I made the mistake of thinking that to get Bergman would be a tremendous feat. It was a victory over the rest of the industry, you see. That was bad thinking, and my behavior was almost infantile. In 1949, I was regarded as a specialist in the suspense and thriller genre, but under Capricorn fitted into neither one of these categories. In fact, the Hollywood Reporter commented on it by saying that one had to wait 105 minutes for the first thrill of the picture. Anyway, I looked upon Bergman as a feather in my cap. We were making it with our own production company, and all I could think about was, here I am, Hitchcock, the one-time English director, returning to London with the biggest star of the day. I was literally intoxicated at the thought of the cameras and flashbulbs that would be directed at Bergman and myself at the London airport. All of these externals seemed to be terribly important. I can only say now that I was being stupid and juvenile. The action of Under Capricorn takes place in Australia, hence the title. Joseph Cotton is a former convict who ends up becoming one of the richest men in the country. He marries Ingrid Bergman, who was a lady. Michael Wilding shows up, and jealousy ensues. Here's a clip giving you a good idea of this film, where Joseph Cotton lays out all the backstory 
endlessly telling us rather than Hitchcock showing us. I started as a stable boy. I've been with the Considines for years. I was like one of the family. They're an easygoing lot in Ireland. I taught her to ride. It would have done your heart good to see her on a horse. And the courage of her. She'd go at a fence like it had the kingdom of heaven on the other side of it. That's the kind of a girl she was. That's the kind of girl she is. But she wasn't at her best tonight. No. I would no more have thought of making love to her than if she'd been a blessed angel. You know how it is. She had a reckless strain in her. And I had a bit of the devil in me, too. There was bound to be trouble, and trouble there was all right. I'm wearying you. I don't know. No, please go on. The people were determined to get me, and get me they did. We didn't go into how they did. I was lucky to escape the gallows. But I got seven years' transportation. You'd think that would have finished it, but it didn't. She sold all she had and followed me out here. What did she do then? She waited. I kept my eyes open while I was in there. I didn't take long in making money. I'd meant to make it up to her, you see, for all she'd been through. But it didn't work out that way. We weren't the same people, the two of us, after all those years. There was nothing to talk about that we wanted to talk about. What is it they say in the Bible? The great gulf fixed. It was that way somehow. I had my work, of course, but she had none. You see, she missed her own sort. That was the trouble. We never mentioned it. The fella can't help thinking. Not that it matters now. I just wish I knew what to do. Again, in Hitchcock Truffaut, Hitchcock searches around for other reasons why the film may not have been a success. And he comes up with this. Remember, Under Capricorn was again the lady in groom story. Henrietta fell in love with the groom, and when Joseph Cotton was shipped to Australia as a convict, she followed him there. The main element is that she degraded herself for the sake of her love. Cotton wasn't the right type. Burt Lancaster would have been better. I think he's completely wrong there, actually. Cotton does fine with what he's got. The problem is not the acting. The problem is everything else. The whole thing turned out to be rather a disaster. Robert A. Harris and Michael Lasky in The Films of Alfred Hitchcock say, In the end, the film lost money and was repossessed by the bank that financed it. Under Capricorn also marked the collapse of Transatlantic Pictures, which was Hitchcock's relatively new production company. 
Joseph Cotton continued to work up into the early 1980s. Along the way, he had his own television show, The Joseph Cotton Show, also known as On Trial, from 1955 to 1957. He appears in Zane Grey Theater. He's in the Vincent Price horror film The Abominable Dr. Fibes. He's in Soylent Green, Airport 77, Episodes of Ironside, It Takes a Thief, The Love Boat. He's in two episodes of Tales of the Unexpected. He's in an episode of Suspicion, the Hitchcock-produced show, that episode entitled The Eye of Truth. He's in an episode of Journey to the Unknown, the series produced in the 1960s by Joan Harrison, an episode entitled Do Me a Favor and Kill Me. And he's in two other episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. His next is Season 3, Episode 15, Together, directed by Robert Altman. I also wanted to mention that Joseph Cotton spelled his last name C-O-T-T-E-N, something my spell check refuses to acknowledge. And Joseph Cotton died in 1994 at the age of 88. Now let's delve into the episode itself at last. The episode begins with an air shot of Miami Beach, a nice expansive view, very much in contrast to how small we're going to get by the time this episode is over. We move from that air shot to a scene on the beach. Joseph Cotton plays William Kalu, a big-shot New York businessman. And because he's a big-shot New York businessman, he has his own cabana, complete with lamps and booze and tables and lounge chairs and a secretary who is taking dictation. We know it's out on the beach because a couple in bathing suits walk across, which I think is a really nice touch. Kalu is in a robe, as is his friend Ed Johnson, who is played by Raymond Bailey. This is from IMDb. Raymond Bailey was a great example of if at first you don't succeed. After high school, Bailey headed for Hollywood with the intent on becoming a movie star, but soon found it tougher than he thought. Instead, Bailey went into a high-finance career, working as stockbroker and banker. He made a second stab at Hollywood and again had no success. He then became a seaman, working on various freighters and traveling all over the world. Bailey also worked on a pineapple plantation in Hawaii and tried his luck in the local theater. Deciding to give Hollywood one more try in 1938, he got lucky getting several small parts in the movies which eventually evolved into bigger character roles. Raymond Bailey is a very familiar figure if you've watched any 50s and 60s television. He was mostly known for his role as Mr. Drysdale in the Beverly Hillbillies. He's also in three Twilight Zone episodes, Escape Clause, Back There, and From Agnes with Love. He's in two episodes of Tales of Tomorrow, Ice from Space and The Lonesome Village. And he's in Hitchcock's Vertigo, playing Scotty, Jimmy Stewart's doctor. He is in 10 Alfred Hitchcock Presents altogether and one Alfred Hitchcock Hour. His next appearance, just a few episodes down, is in the Hitchcock-directed The Case of Mr. Pelham. And one other thing about him I thought was kind of cool. He was the uncle of William Sylvester, 
who is best known as playing Dr. Haywood Floyd in 2001 A Space Odyssey. Raymond Bailey died in 1980 at the age of 75. So there they are in their robes, with Kalu dictating to his secretary, and there's a phone call. It's long distance for you, your office in New York. Thank you. Hello? Yes, this is he. Oh, hello, Hubka. Hold on. Uh, uh, that'll be all. I'll stop by your desk and sign them later. Yes, Ed. Hmm? Uh, cigarette. Go ahead, Hubka. I explained that in my note. Didn't you get my note? Yes, Mr. Kalu. I, I have it right here. But it says I'm being let go to conform with Mr. Merlin's new sales setup. That's right. But the sales don't have anything to do with accounting, Mr. Kalu. I can chart results of any type of selling. This, well, this just doesn't make sense. It may not make any sense to you, Hubka, but I'm afraid that's up to Mr. Merlin. But, Mr. Kalu, I don't know. What am I going to do? This is so abrupt and unexpected. I can't, I can't. Good Lord, man, you're not being sent to Siberia. You've got six months severance pay and there are other jobs. So as far as we can tell, Kalu has fired a man named Hupka and he's done it by sending him a note. Oh, no, no, Mr. Kalu, there aren't for me. Don't you see, after all these years, the company is, is just like it was our own business. My whole family, even the children, feel they belong to it. And it to them. I just can't go home and face them, if this is true. Listen, Hubka. Don't you see? It's the upset. It's the suddenness. If a thing like this can happen, then I can't be sure of anything. Anything? This is the last, the very last thing I thought could happen, Mr. Kalu. Mr. Kalu. Operator. Operator. We've been cut off. Operator. Operator. We've been cut off. They haven't been cut off. Instead, Kalu hangs up on Hubka. And he is completely unsympathetic. Can you imagine that? He was crying. I heard him. I hate that kind of weakness. What do you expect? Three cheers? After all, the bottom has just dropped out of the man's old world. Didn't have to weep about it. You should show some control of your emotions. Well, I suppose so, within reason. But it's not such a good idea to try to control him beyond a certain point. He may have saved himself from something worse by breaking down now. Saved himself from what? Oh, I don't know. Maybe from killing himself? Maybe from hating you? Maybe even from trying to kill you? Well, shall we trap them all in this afternoon? No, I guess so. If they're running, I may even stay till tomorrow. You just can't sit on the beach and relax, can you? I'd go nuts trying to do nothing, but nothing. So Kalu's reaction to what Ed said about how it may have been cathartic for Hupka to cry is, hey, let's go marlin fishing. And then there's a nice little bit of foreshadowing where he says, I'd go nuts trying to do nothing. The scene shifts to Route 1, Kalu driving back to New York. We have the usual Hitchcock rear screen projection. Kalu's face is essentially expressionless as he's driving, the steering wheel right below his chin in the shot, again foreshadowing to some extent. 
There's a detour because of a prison work crew. But the whole thing is really sort of odd. The crew seems to be on this little dirt road off of Route 1. So what's going on on Route 1 that actually requires the detour? When Kalu comes around, there's a truck there with convicts who are doing the work and some prison guards. And there's a bulldozer. And then suddenly there's this strange montage of the bulldozer heading towards Kalu's car. Why? We don't know. Hitting the car. Everything becomes a jumble. It is all done in a very bloodless fashion. There are people killed in the accident. We don't see any of that. We don't even see the car hit the truck. Nothing of that sort. All we get are sound effects. Wrenching sounds of collision, a scream. Even before Kalu is paralyzed, sounds become very important to ratchet up our emotions without allowing us to see exactly what went on. The montage leads to a blackout. When we fade back in again, we have a camera point of view shot going in and out of focus. We're now seeing things through Kalu's eyes. His car is a convertible, and the view that we have is some trees, the top of his driver's side door, the triangular side window that you used to have in cars at that time. And the narrative voice begins. What is it? Why is everything so fuzzy? It's like, like dust on my eyes. How could that be? Hey, I can't close them. I can't, I can't move anything. I can't feel it. I'm, I'm paralyzed. But maybe, maybe if I concentrate, no, no. No, it won't work. I can't move. Here's Leslie Coffin, author of Hitchcock's Stars, from the Hitch 20 documentary about breakdown. The speaking voice is key to this performance, and he's done radio. He has experience doing radio with people like Orson Welles, so who better than to play a character who suddenly only has the voice in his head um, to keep him company. We cut to a shot of Kalu sitting in his driver's seat, unmoving, with the steering wheel wedged under his chin. Now we get a series of shots. The montage takes over again. We shift to another angle that appears to be a photo. In fact, a number of these are still shots, though the one in which his eye twitches is clearly not. Shots moving closer on his face, back again, and then we go back to the fuzzy point of view shot, what he's actually seeing. He tries to figure out the situation himself, and we follow him through all of that in narration. And for a little while, he seems to be surprisingly optimistic. I'll find out when they get me out of here. It won't be long. Somebody will come soon. So I'll just lie and wait. That's all I can do. At least I can see. It's lucky I'm not looking right at the sun. It's so quiet. Am I deaf? No. No, I can hear. 
the birds. It's just quiet. The camera keeps taking us to different angles. We get a shot of just his chin with the steering wheel. A shot of the bulldozer, so we can see that the car's windshield is broken. And then a shot through that broken glass. A little bit of Kalu's optimism starts to fray as he wonders if he was the last person on the detour and it might take them a while to find him. But then suddenly we have a distant shot to show three people showing up. It's okay. Ain't nobody here. Looks like clean pickings. Yeah. Come on. Let's hurry and get out of here. Man, man, was they clobbered. The actor with the clobbered line is none other than Aaron Spelling in the early days of his career when he was still trying to make it as an actor. Not too many years after this, he switches to writing and then to producing, eventually, as Jack Seabrook puts it in Bare Bones Easing, becoming one of the most powerful and successful TV producers in Hollywood in charge of many long-running TV series such as Charlie's Angels, Beverly Hills 90210, and Charmed. You can also add to that list The Love Boat and Dynasty. According to Wikipedia, at the age of eight, Spelling psychosomatically lost the use of his legs due to trauma caused by constant anti-Semitic bullying from his schoolmates, and he was confined to bed for a year. He made a full recovery. At the time that he was in this Hitchcock episode, he was married to Carolyn Jones, who is known mainly as Morticia Adams, in the Addams Family TV series. She will appear in episode 13 of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, The Cheney Vase, along with Patricia Collinge, who played Teresa Wright's mother in Shadow of a Doubt. In the 1950s, Aaron Spelling produced and wrote at least 20 episodes of Zane Grey Theater, and in 1966, he formed the Thomas Spelling Production Company with Danny Thomas eventually transitioning to the Spelling Goldberg production company with Leonard Goldberg in 1972. Wikipedia says, as of 2009, Spelling, through his eponymous production company Spelling Television, holds the record as the most prolific television writer and producer in U.S. television history, with 218 producer and executive producer credits. Forbes ranked him the 11th top-earning deceased celebrity in 2009. Yes, I said deceased. Aaron Spelling died in 2006 at the age of 83. So Kalu, paralyzed in his car, thinks that help has come. Good. That wasn't long. Him too. Yeah. I must look pretty bad. We better get started. We may not have much time. Here, get those tools out of the back. Right. As the three men go about their business, the audience may be asking themselves the same questions that Kalu asks himself. What are they doing? Why aren't they moving me? Oh, I have to do something to the car to get me out, I guess. Then he starts to figure it out. What are they doing? Why should it take so long? Maybe they don't know I'm alive. Maybe they just came for the car, but what with? I didn't hear a car when they arrived. They must have come on foot. You about through? Just about. Wait till I get these bags out. They didn't come to help. They're just here to loot, strip the car. They live nearby and heard the crash. So they jack up the car, and they take two tires. Then they open up the trunk, 
and they steal Kalu's suitcases. Why wouldn't they look at me? They should have checked. Don't even wonder if I'm alive. They could have telephoned for help and still have kept this stuff. No one would know. I wouldn't care. So we've quickly come down to this. This is a man who had a cabana on the beach in Miami with a telephone and liquor and all of the amenities. And now things have completely flipped for him. And possessions mean nothing. He doesn't care if they take all of his stuff. Just check to see if he's alive and notify the authorities. But they don't, and they leave. We get a shot from below and beside the bulldozer as we see two prisoners, one white, one black, entering the frame. They've come back to try to get some clothes so that they can get out of their prison uniforms. The white convict is pretty single-minded about that. The black convict looks at Kalu and expresses sympathy. In fact, he may be the only character in the entire episode who expresses any sort of sympathy for the situation. And it's interesting, particularly in 1955, that the one person that does that is an African-American convict. Look at that poor fella. That wheel really got him jammed in, huh? Yeah, it broke his neck, too. Hey, you reckon he's still alive? If we had a mirror, we could tell. Just hold it in front of his mouth, see if it clouds up. Why don't you just feel my pulse? That is a good question. It's something that no one thinks to do in the entire episode. Now, the white convict still wants Kalu's clothes, so the two convicts get the steering wheel away from him. They twist him around and they lie him on the front seat which is not such a great idea if he has a broken neck moving him around like that. But then again, they don't know he's alive. Come on, get in here next to me. Put your feet up here. Let's push this. Okay. What happened? Oh, they moved me. I didn't feel it. Except maybe... Maybe a little less pressure in my chest. Now I feel... You think he's still alive? Of course not. With his eyes open like that, are you crazy? But I am. Listen to my heart. I am alive. Seems like I kind of seen something shining in them eyes. That's just the sunlight. Then what you moving for? What good that going for? Where's clothes, man? What do you think we done come back here for? His clothes. So the African-American convict sees a little light in his eyes. He actually is paying attention. He cares. The white convict just wants those clothes. So now the indignity is nearly complete as Kalu has his clothes stripped off of him. And he starts just a little bit to despair. I've had about enough of this. Is there nobody around here but criminals and ghouls? Well, not so far, anyway. This character who's stripping me, I hope. I wonder what he looks like, who he is. Well, if I ever run into him again, he'll wish he'd... That's an interesting partial line there. Why does he stop? Is it just the sheer frustration of not being able to move and not being able to do anything? Or is this the first crack? Is this the first hint that we get that he is slowly changing because of this crisis? A realization that these thoughts of revenge are futile in the scheme of things. Come on, boy, I want to get out of here before the sheriff shows. Okay. I don't think you're getting any of these clothes. Don't worry, you got them. I'm keeping them. 
done a lot of things, but I never robbed a dead man. Come on, shut up, get out of here. So there's one more moment of moral indignation by the African-American convict who may be the most humane person in the entire episode. After they leave, we get a new camera angle showing Kalu lying on the seat. Awfully quiet now. I guess they were company in a way. This seems like a rather strange thing to say, but it once again ties in with that slow sinking in of shared humanity which he doesn't have when he callously hangs the phone up on Hupka. Now, it doesn't matter if they're ghouls and convicts. They're other people and their company. But, wait. If I look so, so dead to all those others, suppose, suppose oh, no, 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 they're, they're bound to check. Even these yokels would. But if they didn't, if they just assumed I hadn't went ahead to, now we're coming to the crux of the fear of this episode. It's not just being paralyzed. It's being paralyzed to the extent that you get buried prematurely. I think we all have that fear somewhere in our head, no matter how unlikely that event might be. Kalu is facing it as a very real possibility, and he tries to get a hold of himself and think of how he can get out of this conundrum just have to figure a way to get their attention when they come, that's all. If only I could move, move a little bit. My feet, hands, my face. As he goes through that catalog, the camera switches to each one. My feet, my hands, my face. But then he hears something. If only I... What's that? I hear something. It's a finger. I'm tapping my finger. I'm sure of it. It's moving. All right, I can move a finger and make a sound. Now, now when they come, all I have to do is tap, tap, tap. Hitchcock gives us a close-up of that tapping finger, an extreme close-up. Where else will you ever see an extreme close-up of a little finger of a left hand tapping that seems so important and the sound is amplified? that tap, tap, becomes monumental. It is monumental. The camera then pans up from Kalu's face to the trees. It feels like a huge movement after all the close-ups and jump cuts. And then we fade for the commercial. When we come back, it's not quiet anymore. The authorities are finally on the scene. It's night, and it's noisy, so that that tapping finger, the sound of that tapping finger, is completely drowned out. The sheriff shines a flashlight on Kalu's face. Once again, they determine that he's dead without checking his vital signs, and they move him. There's a camera shot of Kalu's finger moving 
but it's now up in the air, not tapping on anything, and no one sees it. We switch to a point-of-view shot, Kalu's angle, what he sees as he's delivered to the city morgue. Away from all the noise of the accident scene, he now once again thinks that he can get someone to notice his finger. When they take me in, they'll put me on a table or something. It'll be in a good light. They can hear the taps in there, all right. And they'll be looking right at me. They put Kalu on a gurney and start to wheel him into the morgue. All right, here we go. I'll start tapping on the way in. There's only one problem with this plan. The gurney has a squeaky wheel. And that sound is made so huge that even the monumental sound of the tapping finger is drowned out. Again, we're put into Kalu's point of view as we get a shot of the bottom of the jaw of the guy who is pushing the gurney. There's a ceiling light above him. And then a point of view shot of the two guys who look down on Kalu after they've placed him on a stretcher and put a sheet over his face. Kalu realizes he's going to have to lie there all night, and he works himself up to prepare himself for it. All night. All night I'll be alone in the dark. But it's all right. I can do it. I'm not going to break down. They'll be back in the morning with a coroner. It'll be light, and they'll have to look at me then to sign sign the death certificate. I'm not going to break down. That's the one and only time that the title of the episode appears in the episode. But even as he declares that he's not going to break down, there's a little hitch in his voice, a sort of sob, as he talks about them signing the death certificate. The shot fades to black as Kalu falls asleep. We get a shot of him in profile under the sheet it's the next morning, and he hears voices, disembodied, like his narrative voice has been for us through this whole episode. As soon as they move the sheet, I'll tap. It's quiet. They'll have to hear. They'll have to hear. They'll have to see. But they don't see, even after they remove the sheet in a nice point-of-view shot once again, as we feel like we're Kalu underneath that sheet. And why don't they see? I can't move it. What's wrong? I'm, I'm trying. I know I am. Now, now when it could save me. Oh, no, I'm lying on it. They moved it. I'm lying on it. I can't move it now. I'll, I'll never move it now. Oh, don't. Don't go look at me. Take my pulse. Do something. Don't leave me. Jesse. Yeah, Look at here. What is it? Look at there in his eyes. Never seen that before. Like it was a tear. Man, it is tears. And as Kalu cries, we not only get a shot of him with the tear running down his cheek, but we get a point of view shot with water dripping down the frame. So they must have poured a little trickle of water down the camera lens which really cements it for us. He's crying. He's alive. Hurry and get blankets while I get my bag. It's all right. Somebody check Don't worry, fella. We know. 
You'll be all right. We'll take care of you. Thank God. Thank God. It doesn't matter how many times I see that conclusion. It doesn't matter what sort of monster Kalu was prior to all this. It gets to me every time. Now, the first question that may come to mind, if you're the kind of person that thinks beyond the conclusion of an episode, is what can they do for him? Well, that's sort of answered in the short story. Before we get to the story, however, let's look very briefly at the story that probably inspires all of these types of tales, The Premature Burial by Edgar Allan Poe. It's a strange piece. The narrator is a man who is terrified of the possibility of being buried alive, probably Poe himself. As he writes a catalog of different times in which people have been inadvertently buried or incorrectly pronounced dead, here's one of them from that story. The day was about to dawn, and it was thought expedient at length to proceed at once to the dissection. A student, however, was especially desirous of testing a theory of his own and insisted upon applying the battery to one of the pectoral muscles. A rough gash was made and a wire hastily brought in contact when the patient, with a hurried but quite unconvulsive movement, arose from the table, stepped into the middle of the floor, gazed about him uneasily for a few seconds, and then spoke. What he said was unintelligible, but words were uttered. The syllabification was distinct. Having spoken, he fell heavily to the floor. For some moments, all were paralyzed with awe, but the urgency of the case soon restored them their presence of mind. It was seen that Mr. Stapleton was alive, although in a swoon. Upon exhibition of ether, he revived and was rapidly restored to health and to the society of his friends. The most thrilling peculiarity of this incident, nevertheless, is involved in what Mr. S. himself asserts. He declares that at no point was he altogether insensible, that dully and confusedly he was aware of everything which happened to him, from the moment in which he was pronounced dead by his physicians to that in which he fell swooning to the floor of the hospital. I am alive, were the uncomprehended words, which, upon recognizing the locality of the dissecting room, he had endeavored in his extremity to utter. Now, the teleplay was written by Francis Cockrell and Lewis Pollock. Francis Cockrell has appeared before in our very first episode, Revenge, and we'll see plenty of him later on. In fact, his next one is Hitchcock's next one, The Case of Mr. Pelham, which is just a few episodes down the line. So I'm not going to say much about Francis Cockrell, except I don't think I've mentioned that he also directed two Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes, Who Done It, episode 26, and The Rose Garden, which is episode 12 of season two. Lewis Pollock, however, we have not seen before. Now, Lewis Pollock was born in Liverpool. His family came to the United States during World War I. He was a reporter in Chicago. He later worked in public relations for Universal Studios. And then he became the director of advertising and publicity for United Artists. He left that to become a screenwriter and a writer of radio shows. And then he began writing for television in 1949. Jack Seabrook in Bare Bones E-Zine says, He has few credits listed other than Breakdown. He could not sell scripts other than Breakdown from 1954 to 1959, and he wondered why. In 1959, he found out that a store owner named Lewis Pollock 
had refused to testify before the House Un-American Activities Committee, and due to a clerical error, the writer Lewis Pollack had been blacklisted. His name was cleared in 1959, but he was never able to get his career going again, and he died five years later at the age of 60. Now, the story itself appeared in the June 7, 1947 issue of Collier's Magazine. The tagline on the first page of the story, put in by a Collier's editor, was, The heart has reasons which reason does not know. Okay. In the story, the character's name is not Kalu, it's callow. The word callow means inexperienced. So it appears that Pollock is telling us here that Mr. Callow has to go through a growth and a maturity. The story and the episode are very much alike, but there are a few things I want to mention. First, as I said, if you wonder what follows the discovery that Kalu, or in this case Callow, is still alive, there's this paragraph. Something out of a medical book or article flashed into his mind something about motor control of the nerves that lead to the body muscles. Had he lost all control, or was it just deadened temporarily? He had one hopeful sign, he felt, the sense of constriction about his chest. He was grateful for it. It might indicate that the paralysis was not permanent and recovery a possibility. Then, of course, when he is able to tap his finger, that's further proof that the paralysis is going to be temporary. Then, for those of you wondering why no other cars came along, there's this. He could not understand why someone had not chanced along the road and decided that the main highway must have been reopened to through traffic just after he had passed the detour point. And finally, I wanted to note that he gets a lot more physical damage in the story than he does in the episode. The humming ceased and the coroner spoke. Wonder what he looked like. Hard to tell, ain't it, Jesse said. Something in the tone the men used told Callow that his face must not be a pretty sight. Now, as I mentioned, Breakdown was adapted into a radio show on the Prudential Family Hour of Stars in 1949, but then it was followed up on October 24, 1950, as an episode of the television series Suspense. The teleplay for that episode was written by Francis Cockrell and Lewis Pollock. Is it the same script? Well, apparently not, since it appears to involve a plane crash, but we'll never know for certain because the television episode, like the radio show before it, is lost, as is the teleplay itself, apparently. We do know one thing about it, and that is that New York Times columnist Jack Gould was not pleased with it. This is from the suspense section of a website called museum.tv. Gould became incensed about another episode entitled Breakdown. Written by Francis Cockrell and Lewis Pollock, the episode starred Ellen Violet and Don Briggs. The story focuses on a cruel and tyrannical office boss who breaks his neck in a plane crash and is taken for dead until just before his body is cremated. Gould did not object so much to the story as to its mode of presentation. He was particularly upset by what he called the unrelieved vividness of the details of death which no war correspondent would think of mentioning even in a dispatch from a battlefield. In closing, Gould stated, both the sponsor and auto accessories concern and CBS should be thoroughly ashamed of themselves for their behavior last night. Mystery, murders, and suspense certainly have their place in any dramatic form, but a sustained and neurotic preoccupation with physical suffering for its own sake 
has nothing whatever to do with good theater. It is time for everyone concerned with suspense to grow up. Breakdown, or perhaps The Premature Burial, is next adapted as two EC comic stories. The first one, The Corpse in the Crematorium, initially appeared in Crime Patrol number 16, cover dated February-March 1950, where it is the lead story. It was then reprinted in Crime Suspense Stories number 2, cover dated December 1950, January 1951. And in that story, the main character, Al Gregory, has a condition that brings on catalepsy spells under stress, which is sort of what the character has in Poe's Premature Burial. One of these spells comes on when he is nearly hit by a truck, and everyone assumes he has died of a heart attack from the shock. The only reason he's discovered to be alive is that the crematorium attendant prepares to send his body into the fire and notices that the heat has caused Al to sweat. And I rather like that variation on the story. The art in that story is by Johnny Craig, who you may recall also did the art for Murder May Boomerang, which was a story loosely based on revenge which was the first episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, eventually. The second story is from Haunt of Fear number 10, cover dated November-December 1951, and it is entitled Grave Business. Now, in that story, the main character is Ezra Cooper, who is the senior partner of a funeral business. He and his partner, Charlie Mitchell, charge inflated prices to the grieving families and make out like bandits. On his way back from an undertaker's convention, Ezra has a car accident and is paralyzed. Everyone thinks he's dead. He is sent back to his funeral parlor, where Charlie decides to charge his estate inflated prices in order to buy Ezra's share of the partnership. He doesn't even bother to embalm Ezra. Now, unlike William Kalu, Ezra is never found out and is buried alive. The best part of this story, actually, is the Undertaker's Convention, where it is shown that they are all crooks. They all sit around and tell stories about how they cheat people. $100 for embalming. Ha <laughs> ha, that's what I charge. Why, I could embalm a hippopotamus for a buck and a half. And they also make bad puns as jokes. How's business, Ez? Pretty dead, Phil. Ha <laughs> ha. The artwork in that story is by Graham Ingalls, who signed his work Ghastly. This is the first time that he has signed his work Ghastly. Now, for an episode that is usually thought of as a one-man show, there are plenty of supporting actors. There is also some mix-up as to the roles they play, because the credits only list the actors, and most of the characters don't get names anyway. But here are some of those actors with an attempt to pinpoint exactly which character they were. Harry Landers was one of the tire thieves. Now, the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion lists him as prisoner tire thief, but he was not one of the prisoners. He's one of the trio, along with Aaron Spelling, that show up to loot. IMDB lists him as coroner, which is completely wrong. Now, Harry Landers played Go-Go in The Wild One, one of the motorcycle toughs with Marlon Brando. He also had a regular role in the TV medical drama Ben Casey as Dr. Ted Hoffman. But he's probably most recognized as Dr. Arthur Coleman in Turnabout Intruder, the very last episode of the original Star Trek television series. He's the poor slob who goes along with Janice Lester putting her mind in Captain Kirk's body. Because, as he says, You are. You are as I loved you. Kill him. Can you do anything for her? 
I'd like to take care of her. Of course. Come with me. He has one prior association with Hitchcock. He's in Rear Window as the man with Miss Lonely Hearts. And he's in two other Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes. The next is The Day of the Bullet, episode 20 of season 5. Harry Landers died in 2017 at the age of 96. James Edwards played the African-American convict. IMDb says that he was a pioneering actor who was among Hollywood's first, years ahead of Sidney Poitier, to crush the step-and-fetch-it stereotype of black males as shiftless illiterates. Although in some pictures, Edwards would portray subservient characters, such as General Patton's valet in Patton, he delivered true dignity in his performances. Wikipedia says it was believed he was originally cast in Universal's Red Ball Express, but was replaced by Sidney Poitier when he refused to testify before the House Un-American Activities Committee. He is in Stanley Kubrick's The Killing and John Frankenheimer's Manchurian Candidate, and he's possibly best known for his role in Home of the Brave, in which he played a soldier experiencing racial prejudice while serving in the South Pacific. We'll see him again in Episode 15, The Big Switch. James Edwards died in 1970 at the young age of 51. Mike Reagan, who played the clothes-stealing convict, was born in Los Angeles as Hollis Allen Bain. IMDb says he didn't start out to be an actor. He wanted to be a big band musician. That didn't work out for him, unfortunately, so he wound up getting a job as an office boy at MGM. From there, he worked his way into the makeup department under the tutelage of famed makeup artist Jack Dawn. From there, he started to get bit parts, and after he came back from service in the Marine Corps in World War II, he went back to his makeup job. He eventually decided to trade it for work as a full-time actor. His stocky build and somewhat menacing attitude got him a lot of work in westerns as a heavy, usually a gunfighter or henchman. He actually divided his time between acting and makeup work, and in the 1960s, when westerns began to fade from the scene, he went back to makeup full-time, eventually working on many prominent TV shows such as Welcome Back, Cotter, Barney Miller, and Fish. Now, while he was mostly in westerns, including Zangre Theater, he was also an army captain in The Day the Earth Stood Still and a tank commander in Earth vs. the Flying Saucers. He's also in a film called Canadian Mounties vs. Atomic Invaders, which sounds like it's a must-see. He's in four episodes of Suspicion, and six more episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and one Alfred Hitchcock Hour. His next episode is Momentum, episode 29. And Mike Reagan died in 1995 at the age of 77. Harry Shannon plays the coroner. Both the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion and IMDb list him as Doc Horner, a name that is mentioned in passing amongst all the hubbub of the accident scene when the sheriff and his crew show up. I assume that Doc Horner is the coroner, but I'm not sure it's ever specifically stated as such. I mention Harry Shannon because he shares something else with Joseph Cotton besides this episode. He's in Citizen Kane, where he plays Charles Foster Kane's abusive father. He's also in two more Orson Welles films, The Lady from Shanghai and Touch of Evil. And Harry Shannon died in 1964 at the age of 74. Murray Alper plays Lloyd, the sheriff's assistant. He had a long career, often playing cab drivers. He's in a whole strange combination of films, everything from Abbott and Costello meet the killer Boris Karloff 
to the Three Stooges go around the world in a daze. But he also has three moments in Hitchcock films. He's Harold the taxi driver in Hitchcock's Mr. and Mrs. Smith. He's a truck driver in Saboteur. And he's the boatman in Strangers on a Train, the one who pinpoints Robert Walker's character as the actual killer. Here's a quick medley of those three roles. This must be costing her husband a pile of dough. And you want to hear my opinion? Fine. You ain't going to catch her at anything. She's pretty foxy. Oh, I don't know. You know what we ought to do, you and me? Fine. Let's go to a barbecue show. This thing ain't going to do nothing this afternoon. In the afternoons is when you catch them. No kidding. That's funny. What is? Where does my wife go every afternoon? Oh, that must have been Junior. Felt like him. Junior? Yeah, that rock we just got. I know everyone on the road from Los Angeles to Reno. Tough job driving a truck. Got the other hot news tonight? Captain Turley. Captain Turley. He says this isn't the man we want. It's the other one, the one he was fighting with. What do you mean this isn't it? Not Haynes. But you said he was. You pointed him out. No, I didn't, sir. I've never seen this man before in my life. I meant the other one. Wikipedia says... His biggest role should have been the part of Gus Smith in the Alfred Hitchcock film Lifeboat in 1943. Due to his becoming ill right before the start of shooting, he was replaced by actor William Bendix. Now, Murray Alper is in one other episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and one Alfred Hitchcock Hour. The Alfred Hitchcock Presents episode is not the running type, episode 19 of season 5. And in the Alfred Hitchcock Hour episode, he, of course, plays a cab driver. Murray Alper died in 1984 at the age of 80. Ralph Peters is a bit of a puzzle. IMDb lists him as coroner's assistant, who we learn from both the show and the short story is named Chessie. But the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion lists Marvin Press as Chessie and Ralph Peters as, quote, also in the cast, unquote. If you look at Ralph Peters' picture on IMDb, he looks like he may be Chessie. I went looking for a picture of Marvin Press to compare, but I couldn't find one anywhere. I did find out, though, that there's a publishing imprint called Marvin Press. The other way to solve this was to look at Ralph Peters' other Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance, The Rose Garden, episode 12 of season 2, where he plays Barney the cab driver. Looking at Ralph there, it is clear that he is not Chessie. So where is he? A careful sweep of the episode reveals him to be one of the men helping at the county morgue, but his face is on camera for literally two seconds. Ralph had a long career in B-movies and early TV before dying at age 56 in 1959. There are a couple of other glitches. Elsie Emanuel is listed in the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion as Mr. Kalu's secretary when, according to IMDb, he is actually a man. IMDb says he played the black escaped convict, but that was James Edwards. So most likely, Elsie Emanuel is the black member of the threesome who loot, along with Harry Landers and Aaron Spelling, whom, by the way, both the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion and IMDb list as road worker. Now, we previously discussed the 1980s version of the Alfred Hitchcock Presents show when we talked about revenge. That adaptation was unsuccessful. This one is worse. It's too bad because it's got two good stars in it, John Hurd and Andy Garcia. But just like most of the 80s episodes, it just overdoes everything. It overdoes 
the evil of the main character. It overdoes the yelling. It overdoes the twists. And it strives for a shock ending rather than a redemptive one. Plus, there's far too many iguanas. So in this version, John Hurd's character, William, is a cocaine supplier with a partner, Alexander Ramos, who's played by Andy Garcia. They are in the imaginary South American country of Barrero. And William betrays his partner to the police and then scoffs at the fact that it is reported to him that Alexander cried when the police took him away. Now, when William hits the detour, it's not just an accident of the bulldozer. He's impatient with waiting, and he plows right through, killing a guard. And he gets paralyzed. And at a certain point, a prisoner comes along and takes his clothes, but then actually bothers to put his prison clothes on William. Now, why would he bother? For the ridiculous twist that comes at the end of this particular version of the episode. As I said, William is completely unsympathetic. He rants and raves in his internal monologues, screaming and insulting people. Here's an example. Somebody get me out of here. I'm alive. I'm alive. I'm alive. Do you feel like you're watching Colin Clive in the original Frankenstein? Here's one other example. Do you see my finger? Stop. See my finger! See my finger! Any moron can see my finger! See the finger! Dude! They find me in here, boy, and see my finger! No, 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 this is, this is not, this is what is, this is not an ambulance, this is my, do you see my finger? Don't shut me up in here! Anyway, it comes down to the same thing. There's a tear. They realize he's alive. But does it end there? No. They think he's a prisoner. Ah, that's why the guy bothered to put his prison clothes on him. So they take him to the prison, wheel him into some operating room. And who comes in to operate on him? Alexander Ramos comes in to operate on him. Why? Who knows? And who cares? It's one big hot mess. Also worth mentioning is Stephen King's short story, Autopsy Room 4, not because of the plot of a paralyzed man who is believed to be dead, but because of King's afterword, in which he writes, At some point, I think every writer of scary stories has to tackle the subject of premature burial, if only because it seems to be such a pervasive fear. When I was a kid of seven or so, the scariest TV program going was Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and the scariest AHP... My friends and I were in total agreement on this, was the one starring Joseph Cotton as a man who has been injured in a car accident. Injured so badly, in fact, that the doctors think he's dead. They can't even find a heartbeat. They are on the verge of doing a post-mortem on him, cutting him up while he's still alive and screaming inside, in other words, when he produces a single tear to let them know he's still alive. All right, so King's memory is a little bit off with the search for a heartbeat in the postmortem, but that just shows how effectively the episode spurned on the imagination of a future horror writer. In his book, Cult TV, John Javna lists Breakdown as one of the five classic Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes. The others he lists are The Glass Eye, Bang Your Dead, Lamb to the Slaughter, in the Alfred Hitchcock Hour episode, The Jar. In the Cinema on Miniature comments, reprinted in the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion, 
Ulrich Rudell writes that Breakdown is one of the most audacious formal experiments of Hitchcock's entire career. On the other hand, the movieblog.com says it just feels a bit clunky for a television adaptation. Part of the problem is one of suspension of disbelief. Naturally, the camera lingers on our lead character's face for an extended period, but it's hard to avoid the fact that his car crash doesn't look especially serious. In fact, it looks like the majority of the damage to the car was to the steering wheel of all things, snapping his neck and pinning him on the seat. To be fair, we do see a cracked windshield later on. Still, it seems like what Hitchcock could show of the carnage car crash itself was restricted, whether by the budget of the show or by standards of decency. However, a far greater problem is one of telling rather than showing. By its nature, an episode focused on the paralyzed survivor of a car crash isn't going to have too much action, but the character's inner monologue feels more than a little overwrought and melodramatic at times. It wouldn't be so bad, save that he keeps complaining about how silent it is. It's just that it's so silent, I guess, he observes, and lonely. Such comments might have been more effective if the episode had wallowed a bit in the silence, creating an eerie atmosphere, rather than starting the voiceover almost as soon as any other character wanders off screen. The Pie Lady at pieladyanthology.wordpress.com agrees. She says, nothing happens in it. I mean, nothing. You thought Triggers and Leash was missing some action? This is at least 10 minutes of shots of a paralyzed Joseph Cotton listening to his voiceover. And she gives the episode a B. Okay, so the reviews are a little bit mixed. What about some observations? We get back to our standard question. Is it more than the twist? And in this case, is it more than the crying? Well, in his intro, you may recall that Hitchcock says, Tonight's story tells about a business tycoon and will give you something to ponder if you have ever given an employee the sack, or if you intend to. So that's one rather tongue-in-cheek moral to the story. Now, in the films of Alfred Hitchcock, Robert A. Harris and Michael S. Lasky write, In 23 minutes, Hitchcock plays with the ironies of the man. He starts with power and ends with none. He begins with disdain for open emotions and in the end saves himself by displaying them. Clever use of subjective camera and still photography made this premiere an example of what was to come in the next seven years from Shamley Productions. Looking at all this from a directing point of view, Matthew Hunt at blog.matthewhunt.com writes, This is a classic Hitchcock strategy. The audience knows more than the on-screen characters, thus constantly intensifying the suspense. This is followed by a series of long still shots of Cotton's paralyzed face, just as Janet Lee's motionless face stares at us from the bathroom floor in Psycho. Now, Peter Aykroyd, in his book Alfred Hitchcock, takes that same concept and goes a little further. He writes, It was also the first expression on television of one of Hitchcock's favorite images, that of a face motionless with rage, anger, fear, or death itself. It is the quintessential Hitchcock visage, too traumatized to be able to react, stripped of all cultural reference, a bare blank stare. In his films, From the Wrong Man to Frenzy, that blind gaze is characteristically given to female victims. And in The Dark Side of Genius, Donald Spoto takes that same concept and runs with it. He writes, Breakdown was a significant first choice, for it summarized the motifs of sudden punishment and the terror of enclosure, immobility, and madness 
that would characterize Hitchcock's eminent features The Wrong Man, Vertigo, and Psycho. The final shot of Cotton's blank stare, a premature death mask staring out at the viewer, is from this time forward Hitchcock's preferred image. And with it, he seems to have given expression to the deepest terror in his soul, a terror that went as far back as the story of his own brief childhood enclosure in a prison cell. The stare of madness, the gaze of one immobilized within the prison of his own flesh, or sin, or emotional constriction, concludes nine of the 20 dramas Hitchcock directed for television. Breakdown, Revenge, The Case of Mr. Pelham, Wet Saturday, Four O'Clock, Lamb to the Slaughter, Dip in the Pool, Banquo's Chair, and The Crystal Trench, as well as, of course, his feature, Psycho. Now, as I already said, the movie blog did not give a particularly good review to this episode, but they do also say this. In fairness, the story makes some clever points about modern society and how sterile and disconnected it has become. The idea that he could be left alone so long on the side of the road says a lot. And there's a nice scene where two prisoners debate whether or not he's still alive. One seems to regret that they don't have a mirror to hold over his mouth. His inner monologue demands, why don't you just feel my pulse? It feels like a pretty damning commentary on how detached the modern world has become, where people will gleefully loot a dead body for clothes, but won't touch it to check that there's no pulse. And that's a very interesting way to look at this episode. Now, as for the title of the episode, exactly what does it mean? What does it refer to? Jack Seabrook in Bare Bones E-Zine says, The title may refer to the breakdown of the employee near the start of the story, the breakdown of Kalu's car in the accident, the breakdown of societal norms that occurs in his presence when he's thought dead, or his own breakdown at the end that leads to his salvation. Those are all good choices. And I particularly like the one, referring once again to the movie blog, that deals with the breakdown of societal norms that occurs. But there's only one time in the whole episode that the word breakdown is actually used. And that's when Kalu thinks, All night I'll be alone in the dark. But it's all right. I can do it. I'm not going to break down. He's not going to break down. He's lost his possessions, his car, his tires, his clothes. He's lost his dignity as he's stripped by a desperate convict. He's even lost his companions, such as they were. But he has not lost his belief that breaking down is a weakness. Now, when I was a kid, not too long after the airing of this episode, society taught us that crying was unacceptable for boys. It wasn't just parents telling this to their kids. Teachers told us, policemen told us, all sorts of adults told us. This episode says that society is wrong, not just in the conclusion, but in Ed Johnson's comments at the beginning of the episode. And if society can be wrong about this, it can be wrong about other things, like racial profiling or penal punishment. Remember, the most sympathetic character in this whole film is an African-American convict. Now, all that may not be intended, except that maybe it is. Okay, things have run on a little long here, but since this is a Hitchcock-directed episode, I would like to bring back for a short chat Amy Cantu, who is a librarian at the Ann Arbor District Library. Amy was with me for the first episode of the podcast, Revenge. I'd like to get Amy back as often as I can for the bigger episodes, particularly the ones directed by Hitchcock. So I'll just come out and say, what did you think of Breakdown? I thought it was masterly. I thought it was a great example of the short form 
a great example of his ability to have multiple layers of suspense in ways that you wouldn't expect there to be, especially with a lot of static scenes and basically a static actor through the majority of the film. So I really enjoyed it. Okay, good. There was some talk about some people thinking that this was not something that should be done for television, not only because it's so static, but also because the subject matter is a little bit gruesome. Yeah, it's very gruesome. And by the end, I can barely wait for it to end, which I think is really effective. I mean, the two greatest fears you have, right, are being paralyzed and buried alive. And that is what happens. That is the fear through the whole thing. And I just couldn't wait for it to end. But that doesn't mean it wasn't good. Right. You know. And you? What'd you think? Yeah. Oh, I think it's really good. It is masterly. All the things that Hitchcock puts into it. I think it's right up his alley. When you look at some of the stuff he was doing, the experiments he was doing in some of the films a little bit prior to this, things like Rope yep. and so on, it becomes like a director's challenge. There's a previous episode that I already did, Triggers and Leash, mm-hmm. which is three people in a cabin, essentially, and two of them are ready to draw on each other. Right. And you've watched it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not only confined to that space, but also they can't really move because the slightest twitch they'll draw. So how do you make that interesting? And the director of that used all sorts of different interesting camera angles. So when you're sort of reduced like this, it makes it necessary that the director become like an extra character. Mm -hmm. And I think Hitchcock really does here with everything he does. Yeah. People show up a couple of times. It's critical, but it's the camera angle that the point of view from him looking out the car window, the smashed window, there's not much there. He says at one point, I'm glad I'm not facing the sun, but otherwise you're not looking at anything. Yeah. And then all the shots of the people that are looking down at him. It's really effective. I mean, it's, it would have been a great exercise as a director to try to convey this stress, suspense, anxiety. And, you know, we get most of his emotions through voiceover. Yeah. In fact, we get all of them until the end. I was very uncomfortable watching it. I was almost sickened. I like Joseph Cotton. He's a seems to me a pretty regular guy in every man, but and I had recently seen him again in The Third Man. He doesn't have a completely naturalistic style of acting. You know, there's still that kind of style back then that was a little forced, a little staged, I guess, but he kind of looks and otherwise seems like, you know, your regular guy. But seeing Mm -hmm. a frozen face, and I didn't know. I was trying to see if, how do you deal with the not blinking? Did he actually just have a frozen image for most of that? Yeah, some of them are still photographs. I don't know how they could have done it otherwise. Yeah, you can actually tell with some of them when they aren't because you can see that his eye twitches a little bit. And have you ever tried to leave your eyes open for a really long time without blinking? It's impossible. So I have a question for you. Did you feel any sympathy for him until the end? Did it change throughout? Yeah, for me it does. Okay. Are there things that the camera or the director do that make you feel for him? Because I didn't at the beginning. No, I don't. you don't feel for him at the beginning. I mean, this is a classic moral tale, right? Yeah, you yeah. do not get to ignore your fellow man and be cold-blooded with impunity. So right. then what? Yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. The story itself is as simple as it comes. Yep. Even the title isn't really too much of a, a mystery here, you know. Well, what, what do you think it means? Well, it's both the car breaking down and him breaking down and the whole idea of breaking down being a sign of your own humanity. The way he treats his employee earlier in the film at the very beginning and, 
you know, to me, it's pretty obvious that guy has a breakdown and he can't handle it and doesn't want to deal with it and hangs up on it. He has no empathy. He has no feelings. Expressing yourself and showing your emotions and crying, breaking down is a thing that you need to do. Yeah. So there's that. And, and as you said, the breakdown of the car, there's also the breakdown of society. Yeah. You know, he says several times during it, just check that I'm breathing, feel my pulse. Nobody ever bothers. I know. You know. Why is that not happening? Because it seems like a failure in the plot point, but I think it's the point. Yeah. You're right. It's like they just, he's dead. He becomes an object. Yep. And there's only one person that expresses any sort of sympathy at all, and it's an African-American convict. Yes, that's right. So it's also the breakdown of the character himself, Kalu. He's broken down systematically. He starts as this big hotshot that can't stand any sort of emotion, and he's slowly broken down. He gets stripped of his possessions. He gets stripped of his clothes. He gets stripped of his dignity. He gets stripped of all these things until it's finally just down to a very simple thing. I need to prove I'm alive. Dignity is irrelevant. All these trappings are irrelevant. Right. So it's the whole breakdown of his personality to some extent. The other thing, of course, that goes with your idea of society breaking down is he actually kills the guards for yes. the prisoners. And what happens to them? I mean, it's odd that when he wakes up, nobody's there. Like they've all scattered. Like I was confused initially as to why there was nobody there because you would think that the chaos would have meant that people were trying to save somebody, but no, they didn't. It's an interesting question, and it might be a weakness in the story. It might be. He apparently kills all the guards. Yeah. But were they all standing in the same spot? Yeah. You know, that doesn't seem likely. I think I read where he killed three, and I only really saw one, maybe two, but then there was the guy in the tractor. What, yeah, what happened to exactly. him? Exactly, <laughs> right. So, so and, you know, was he a convict? I don't know. You wouldn't think you'd have a convict riding the tractor. Right. And then there's, like, this assumption that, well, wasn't this a detour? I mean, wasn't there a guy doing that? Detour? Right, right. What happened Shouldn't other cars come? Although he you looks know. a little ominous. Oh, that, okay. that moment is a little strange. It's sort of, okay, you're going off into some strange world now. That detour sign and the guy standing there didn't look too regular. The whole, th- Yeah, really. The whole thing is just... Twilight you know. zone Right. That's true. I mean, I'm not sure I'd take that detour. It's just like this guy sort of waving you onto this dirt road. <laughs> and then, I don't know if you went through this either, but there is also that sort of conceit, I guess. You know, he wakes up. So then you ask yourself, is he in a nightmare? Is this reality? Is he in a coma? Wh- yeah. Where is he? And I took it for granted that this is just, that's his reality and it's the real world. It's just not a very nice one. Right. But it did seem nightmarish. Yes. Well, yeah, it's very nightmarish. It is. So I wondered what you thought about, and I'm taking it that you noticed, when they show the tear, he blinks. Did you notice that? Ah, I think I did notice that. I, I mean— I'm not sure it, it they, they show the tear, and they show him blink, and I'm thinking there's no way he would have missed that, and that it must have been deliberate. But all of a sudden, it's like, okay, maybe it's coming back. Yeah. And maybe this was just in time. Yeah. But my question is then, could he have cried all along or not, which is a different, different take. If he had been able to and just didn't go there emotionally, that's one story. If he could have cried to get attention but didn't, that's a different story. And if he really couldn't because it's only over time that he gets use of his eyes back in some way or whatever, but he blinks in that scene. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it kind of threw me. It felt like it shouldn't have been there, but, you know. No, actually, I don't think I necessarily noticed that. If it's intentional, it could mean that his humanity is coming back. Right. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Right. The tear is the first step towards showing that he has emotions and humanity, and maybe the eye movement is also supposed to tell us he's coming back, he's going to completely come back, and we like to think that he's going to come back and be a completely different person. Right, right, right. And what's so brilliant about this episode, like I said at the beginning, and what's so brilliant about what Hitchcock can do is he can just reduce everything to such an, an elemental situation, emotion, You don't have to think about a thousand different things. It doesn't have to be sensationalized. It doesn't have to go in a bunch of different directions. There doesn't have to be the -the over-the-top revenge. It's just a man turns off the road on a detour. He's in an accident. He's paralyzed. And he has to reckon with. And it's interesting because even at that, we don't even get the, oh, he now is thinking about his employee who he had been mean to, and I'm going to go back and say something to him. We don't even need that. We just need to know that he has been turned upside down. Yes. He's bound to come out a different human being. Yeah. And that is something that we look for in this society. Again, I feel like it was a pretty simple tale, and I appreciated the simplicity. And it was so stark that you weren't allowed to go anywhere as a distraction. And watching a paralyzed face with its mouth open and no blinking just torture. And it needs to be that simple so that's to get to where he needs to go and you need to go in your discomfort with it. Yeah, you're right. I like the way you put that, that you're not allowed to go anywhere. Yep. You're sort of locked in on him. And if you're going to watch, you're stuck. Yep. Yeah. And I wanted it to be over when it was over. Yeah. Because it made me kind of sick. Did you see Vanished? The Dutch film? No, I don't think I did. About the abduction, somebody who's buried alive. That whole waking up in a box or in a confined area or with a sheet over your face and people thinking you're dead is about as nightmarish as it comes. Well, you know, you need some sort of release from these sorts of things. And if you don't get a release, then it's like true horror. Yep. This thing has a message. It has a lesson it's trying to teach you. So it can't leave you with true horror. Right. And I was thinking about two different films. I don't know if you've seen either one of these, and I'm going to blow the endings, I think, to some extent with both of them. So anybody who's listening may want to be forewarned on this. One of them is John Ford's film, The Long Voyage Home. Have you seen that? Mm, No. With John Wayne as this Swedish sailor. He has a Swedish accent. That sounds great. (laughs) It's actually a very good film. Is it? I think it might be, I might be totally wrong on this, but I think it might be based on a Eugene O'Neill thing. Anyway, I don't remember the details anymore. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but I just remember being struck by these guys are on this ship and they're going through all this stuff. And the big Swede, John Wayne, has like plans. He's like saving up his money. And he's got plans to do something with his money. He's going to buy a farm or something or other. And at some point near the end of the film, he gets mugged or something and all of his money stolen. Oh, God. And I remember just being furious at that and so frustrated. The whole thing had built up, built up, built up to this. And then, bam, this awful thing. But somehow or other, and I don't remember how, he gets the money back. So John Ford doesn't leave you with this horrible conclusion. He gives you an ending that makes you feel like it was worth going through that arc and you don't end it feeling horrible. And You mean like the way you felt at the end of Dances with Wolves? 
you dance with wolves the whole show and at the end. Yeah, right, exactly. And I was thinking about there's a film, and I'm not sure I can remember the name of it. There's a film that is based on a Stephen King story where this fog comes into this town and these monsters are in the fog. Oh, darn it. I didn't see that either. Okay. The Mist. Yeah, so it's called The Mist. I'm going to blow this, too. So there is this mist that comes into this town, and it brings monsters with it. And everybody's just trying to survive. And finally, at the end, you're down to like three people or something, and they have a gun, and they're going to try to get out of the mist. They get into a car, and they decide that if they can't save themselves, that they're going to kill each other rather than let the monsters get them. So they go driving, driving. I think they run out of gas or something. So they have to pull over by the side of the road. They're still in this mist. The guy who's the driver turns and kills the other people with the gun. And he's about to kill himself. And suddenly the mist parts and you see the army coming in to save everybody. So that one's like, ah. And that's like true horror. That's like you get to that point and you're not saved. You you don't get the humanity of it all. In this show, it was suspense. Yeah. And a moral lesson. So anything else you wanted to add? Well, the one thing I thought of is that, because I'm sensitive to that these days, is that there weren't any women in the film other than a secretary at the very beginning taking notes. I was actually glad that the female perspective didn't necessarily confuse the issue. He was reckoning with himself. It adds a different dimension, bringing a female in, that he not only didn't abuse a female, but he didn't get rescued by one either. He had to basically deal with his situation himself. And yeah, I know you have yeah. some thoughts on that Of course, that as well, well. It just that if it was a woman crying at the beginning, that that's socially acceptable. Right. So it had to be a man that he would be appalled at that. But it is interesting, actually, that there is only one woman in the entire thing. Right. And, and she, she is a secretary, and she doesn't get any lines. And I don't even know who plays her. That's something I couldn't find out. But I'm glad, too, that there wasn't this angel that rescues him at the end. Yeah. That needed to not go there, and it didn't. It yeah. was very much what it needed to be. Okay. Anything else? I like what Hitchcock says right after the show ends. Do you remember what he says? Not offhand. Oh, it's hilarious. He goes, well, that was a bit of a near thing. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Well, that was a bit of a near thing. That's exactly what you're thinking. (laughs) That was a bit of a near thing. It reminded me of my own situation. Imagine, if you can, the terror of being inside a television set, knowing that any moment the viewer may shut you off and being powerless to prevent it. And I go through this every week. My only consolation is that some portions of our program are so fascinating that they hold the viewer spellbound. Such an episode follows immediately, and then I'll be back again. I want to thank Amy Cantu for joining me once again. I hope to get Amy back for episode 10, The Case of Mr. Pelham, which was also directed by Hitchcock. And I want to take the opportunity here to correct a few things that I said in our conversation, one of which is that the secretary actually does get a line. I'm driving back this time, so I won't be there until uh, Thursday the 17th. You can get in touch with me the following week at my office. Yes, he's here. Cordially, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's long distance for you, your office in New York. Thank you. Hello? Yes, this is he. Oh, hello, Hubka. Hold on. Uh, uh, that'll be all. I'll stop by your desk and sign them later. Yes, sir. Ed. Hmm? 
cigarette. If you missed it and all that, it was, which may not be much, but I hope got her a little bit more money than if she had no lines at all. I also want to mention that I checked Wikipedia after my conversation with Amy to look up the plots of both The Mist and The Long Voyage Home. And I got the endings of both of them wrong. The Mist just slightly wrong, The Long Voyage Home a little bit more wrong, but still the point remains. And I feel like Stephen King in his Remembrance of Breakdown. Your memory can be faulty on the details, but the key is that these stories excite your imagination. If you want to contact me, you can email me at scherzmaa at aadl.org. That's S-J-O-E-R-D-S-M-A-A at aadl.org. Please put Hitchcock somewhere in the subject line. You can also leave me a review on iTunes. Now, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I have several of these episodes at any given time in the can as I'm trying to stay ahead and keep a monthly schedule. This seventh episode is actually being recorded when only four episodes have been released. Up to this point, I have gotten one iTunes review and one email. So thank you to Not Your Name for your five-star review and to Grant for your very thoughtful email. I will write back to anybody who writes me and I will read emails on the podcast. I would read grants this time, except we've gone long enough already, so I'll save it for next time. So again, thanks to Not Your Name and to Grant for contacting me. And if you have the urge to contact me, please do. I'd like to hear from you. I also received a tweet from Barnabas Frid, who is clearly a Dark Shadows fan. And Barnabas apparently just listened to the Premonition podcast, because he wrote to inform me that John Forsyth is also in Hitchcock's film Topaz. He's absolutely right. That one slipped through my fingers. So thank you, Barnabas, for that. Alfred Hitchcock presents Season 1, The Collected Tales and Poems of Edgar Allan Poe, which includes The Premature Burial, The EC Archives Crime Suspense Stories, Volume 1, The Dark Side of Genius by Donald Spoto, Alfred Hitchcock by Peter Aykroyd, Citizen Kane, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Saboteur, Shadow of a Doubt, which includes the short feature Beyond a Doubt, The Third Man, Under Capricorn, Strangers on a Train, and Star Trek Season 3 are all available at the Ann Arbor District Library. Lewis Pollock's original short story, Hitch 20, the Alfred Hitchcock Presents 1985 episode, and the clips of Hitchcock interviews are all available online. And did I mention that Edward W. Williams won a 1955 Emmy for his editing work on Breakdown? He did. Next time, Episode 8, Our Cook's a Treasure, starring Everett Sloan and Beulah Bondi. There now. That really held you in suspense, didn't it? For more of the same, I recommend you tune in next week at this time. I shall see you then. Bonsoir.